Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From Political Analysis to Moral Accountability, Ancient Poetry in Modern Eliminationism. It's based upon the text for Sunday, December 13, 2009, the third Sunday in Advent. Last month, I read a book called Worse Than War, Genocide, Eliminationism, and the Ongoing Assault on Humanity by the author Daniel Goldhagen. He begins his study of mass murder with the annihilation of the Herero people by the Germans in 1904. Harry Truman exterminated 300,000 Japanese. The Turks slaughtered 1.2 million Armenians and exported 800,000 more. Hitler, Kim Il-sung, his son Kim Jong-il, Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao Zedong, all made slaughtering a constitutive feature of their civilizations. The Hutu genocide of 800,000 Tutsis in Rwanda is well known. But in fact, says Goldhaven, there have been seven iterative exterminationist episodes since 1962. And in the Democratic Republic of Congo, 5.4 million people have perished in eliminationist campaigns since 1998, making it the deadliest conflict since World War II. Goldhagen estimates that between 127 and 175 million people have been eliminated in just the last 100 years. The victims came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political classes. The vast majority of these people were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and without any substantial dissent. By Goldhagen's count, mass murder has deeply scarred countries that are home to 4.4 billion people, or two-thirds of the world's population. And so the subtitle of his book, that elimination is quote-unquote worse than war, In Goldhagen's taxonomy, elimination takes five main forms. Number one, transformation of a group's essential identity, for example, their language or religion. Number two, repression, enslavement, camps, apartheid, famine, segregation. Number three, expulsion and deportation, as in death marches. Number four, prevention of reproduction by systematic rape in all forms of sexual violence. And number five, extermination. Eliminationism is not inevitable. It's not accidental or a spontaneous eruption. It's not the work of abstract forces or structures. No, says Goldhagen, it's a direct consequence of human agency. People have a choice.
Part of Goldhagen's book is so disturbing that I had to put it down. A friend even told me that he wasn't sure he could finish it. But I appreciated his work for one reason in particular. Goldhagen insists that political analysis must always include moral accountability. The myths, lies, denials, rationalizations, self-exculpations, prettified self-images, and linguistic camouflage by both active eliminators and passive bystanders are endless. But beyond the explanations and excuses, and after we've disabused ourselves of the secular myth of progress, we must ask ourselves, do mass murderers act with ultimate impunity? If you enjoy a secure life in Zurich or Palo Alto, where I live, you have the luxury to deconstruct the ancient poetry of Zephaniah as if it were some pre-scientific myth. But if you and your people face elimination, or if you're one of the billion people who go to bed hungry every night, Zephaniah offers a compelling explanatory narrative. Zephaniah prophesies that the illusion of political impunity will meet the certainty of moral accountability. Zephaniah's five-page prophecy is easy to describe, but hard to imagine. His very first sentence pictures a cosmic cataclysm that results from divine judgment. We read in chapter 1, verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And then his very last sentence in 3, verse 20, rejoices in human redemption. I will restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Between these first and last verses, at least 25 times Zephaniah mentions the day of the Lord or semantic equivalents. He announces a coming day of destruction for all the oppressors of the earth. He compares these predators to ravenous wolves and then envisions their destruction. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The great day of the Lord's wrath will be a day of bitterness, anguish, ruin, and gloom. Zephaniah has harsh words for his own people, Israel. He deplores their religious idolatry in the worship of Baal and Molech. He denounces wanton luxury predicated upon economic exploitation. He describes people who wore, quote-unquote, foreign clothes, expensive imports from exotic destinations. The financial district, the merchants, and those who, quote-unquote, trade with silver, Jerusalem's equivalent to Wall Street, will be wiped out. In the social and cultural realms, violent oppression ruled the day. Israel's politicians, officials, 
prophets, and priests are all identified as hostile predators who, quote, know no shame. Zephaniah expands his purview beyond Israel and even beyond her surrounding enemies to include the entire world. He's a global egalitarian far ahead of his time with a vision that's universal. Portions of his prophecy about the day of the Lord are directed to the whole world and all who live on the earth, the nations and kingdoms on every shore. He expands his prophetic critique to include the five surrounding nations of Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Assyria, and then even wider to include the whole earth. For people who dismiss notions of divine judgment as embarrassing or unworthy of God, the 127 to 175 million people eliminated in the last hundred years remind us that the alternative is ultimate impunity for the Paul Potts of the world. Stretching across 25 centuries, spoken to and for ancient Judaism, but speaking today to Christians, and also to Darfur's possessed Muslims, to Hindus' untouchable Dalits, and to all the exploited of the earth who have endured pillage, plunder, displacement, torture, starvation, burning of villages, systematic rape of their women no matter the age. All these Zephaniah preaches a message of radical redemption. A day is coming, he says in chapter 3, verse 15, when never again will you fear any harm. We rightly dismiss caricatures of divine judgment that portray God as capricious, arbitrary, vindictive, or sadistic. Rather, God's judgment is a purifying response to everything that dehumanizes us. Political violence, oppression, religious fakery, economic exploitation, exile, famine, and war. Must our moral calculus accept that an Idi Amin slaughters with impunity? Do I really want God to leave me to my own worst impulses of envy, greed, anger, and lust? Or do I want him to judge, rescue, and purify me from them? To me, the most terrifying texts in the Bibles aren't those of divine judgment, but those that suggest that God gives me up to the consequences of my own sin, poor choices, and foolishness, as in Romans chapter 1, 24, 26, and 28. The refiner's fire that John the Baptist announces in this week's gospel purges, cleanses, and restores. And so the message of divine judgment is ultimately an optimistic one of human redemption. God's judgment is redemptive and not merely retributive. It's not a punitive end in itself, but a means to a better end, 
Yes, God scatters, says Zephaniah, but he also gathers. Chapter 3, verse 20. Zephaniah announces impending doom, but he also issues an invitation and appeal. He beseeches us to seek the Lord before the awful day of the Lord comes. Divine judgment is not inevitable. It's not some immutable law of fate. When we repent, as John the Baptist invites us to do in this week's gospel, God eagerly restores. Zephaniah envisions a day when God will, quote-unquote, take away your punishment, a time when you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done. It's a day when he's mighty to save, a time when he takes great delight in us, when he will quiet us with his love and rejoice over us with singing. Echoing his prophetic compatriots, Zephaniah finally says that the day of the Lord is a day when, quote, the nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. A day is coming, says Zephaniah, when never again will you fear any harm. Chapter 3, verse 15. And now for further reflection. What did Jesus mean when he said in John 9:39, For judgment I came into the world. Meditate upon Proverbs 31, 8, and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In addition to Goldhagen's book, for another bleak assessment of human history, see the novel or the film adaptation of The Road by Cormac McCarthy. <clears throat> and finally, for further reading, see Samantha Power, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. And the book by Philip Jenkins, The New Faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South. For books this week, I review Paul Alexander, Signs and Wonders, Why Pentecostalism is the World's Fastest Growing Faith. San Francisco, Josie Bass, 2009, <clears throat> 175 pages. Paul Alexander is professor of theology at Azusa Pacific University and a fourth generation Pentecostal from Kansas. After studies at Pentecostal institutions for his bachelor's and master's degrees, Alexander earned his Ph.D. in religion at Baylor University. It was a time and place when he says he actually became an atheist. But he came back to the fold, and so it would appear that he's the quintessential insider who has enough critical distance to be a reliable guide to modern Pentecostalism. 
There are about two billion Christians in the world, and roughly 500 million of them are charismatic or Pentecostal. Although typically unknown, dismissed, <clears throat> or ignored, in the last few decades, demographers, sociologists, historians, and theologians have given charismatic Christianity the scholarly due that it deserves. There are, for example, the works by Harvey Cox of Harvard, Fire from Heaven, Grant Wacker of Duke, Heaven Below, and Philip Jenkins of the University of Pennsylvania, The New Faces of Christianity. Paul Alexander's simple survey will not displace more scholarly treatments like these few examples, but it's still a welcome addition to a growing literature on an important phenomenon. <clears throat> In eight chapters, Alexander explores the appeal of Pentecostal faith. People believe God can and does intervene in their personal lives. They appeal very deliberately to the affective or emotional element in worship, music, and speaking in tongues. They affirm that God wants to bless people, while at the same time denying the heresy of the prosperity gospel. They tell their stories to each other. They acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare. They make a place for dreams and visions. And they offer hope and joy to ordinary believers. <clears throat> At times, Alexander sounds a little glib and credulous, but he's hardly unaware of the traditional critiques of these eight points, or of their practical abuses. He's seen every fake and fraud there is, and on occasion he names some names. He's especially strong on combining what Pentecostals consider to be the biblical support for their beliefs with stories from personal experience all around the world. Nigeria, Brazil, Tanzania, Korea, and the Philippines. I think Martin Marty of the University of Chicago got it about right in his foreword to this book. Martin Marty writes, quote, I winced in some stories winked when some explanations asked too much of me, kept my fingers crossed as I turned the pages, and yet was strangely moved." End quote. The author, Paul Alexander, the title of the book, Signs and Wonders, Why Pentecostalism is the World's Fastest Growing Faith. For film this week, I review the movie Precious, subtitle based upon the novel Push by Sapphire from 2009. Clarice Precious Jones is a 16-year-old Harlem teenager who's morbidly obese, totally illiterate, very deeply black, and the mother of a Down syndrome child whom she and the family calls Mongo. She's pregnant again, and both of her children are the result of rape by her father. Precious lives with her mother in a darkened apartment. Her mother is uncontrollably violent towards Precious, both physically and emotionally, and epitomizes an urban welfare queen. 
Her torrent of vulgar rage towards precious makes for very difficult viewing. But deep inside, precious is an emotion deep inside precious is an emotional resilience that longs to be normal. She imagines herself as a slender blonde woman, or as having a white boyfriend. A, solicit a solicitous public school teacher transfers Precious to an alternative school, where an improbably gorgeous black teacher jumpstarts her long road to redemption. I believe there's exactly one man in this film, and he plays a very small role. Critics have complained that Precious trades on demeaning racist stereotypes, but the Sundance Festival honored it with, with awards, and fans say that it's a realistic part of the black story. In fact, black superstars Oprah Winfrey and Tyler Perry have lent their name and assistance to the film. The name of the film, Precious, based upon the novel Push by Sapphire. And finally, for the third week in Advent, we've posted a favorite poem for mine that I love to read and meditate upon every year at this time. The author is U.A. Fanthorpe. The title of the poem, B.C.A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. U.A. Fanthorpe, B.C. A.D. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 13th, 2009, the third Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.